Both the Fangraphs readership and 1970s American rock band player have had their calls for the return of Fangraphs audio heard. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, and indeed, after a brief furlough for the winter break, Fangraphs Audio is back. In this particular case, it's back with managing editor Dave Cameron on the day, January 9th, that has seen Barry Larkin get inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame. In what follows, Cameron and I discuss Barry Larkin's candidacy. We take a look at a triumvirate of players, Jeff Bagwell, Edgar Martinez, and Tim Raines, who have Hall of Fame credentials and yet seem unable to gain entry thus far. We consider the relationship between peak value and longevity of career in terms of gaining access to the Hall of Fame, and somehow, no one really knows, uh, we spend longer than one might expect discussing Brian LaHare. No idea why that happens. No idea at all. I do have an idea that uh, this is, in fact, the return of Fangraphs Audio, however, and that it begins right now. Okay, all right, so this will actually probably be up, like, um, maybe a little bit after that. Um, yeah. So as, as of we're talking now, there, there have been no announcements regarding the Hall of Fame. However, it appears uh, to you and, and to a lot of people, it seems like that Barry Larkin will be the only inductee. Yeah, it seems really likely. I think uh, there's people who collect the published ballots and kind of collate them to get an idea of what the, the voting sense is. Uh, kind of like a poll of those people who put their ballots out online. And uh, last I saw, Barry Larkin had like 90% of the publicly released ballots. Um, and usually uh, guys who get 60% plus in their first year don't have to wait too long, especially when there aren't really any other notable first-time candidates in their second year. So I think Larkin will get a pretty easy surge, and I, I'd expect he'll get probably more than 80% of the vote. And Larkin's deserving? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you have to be a really small hall guy in order to keep Barry Larkin out. He's clearly one of the best shortstops of all time. Uh, his numbers compare very favorably to a whole bunch of guys who are already in the Hall of Fame. Um, and you really have to nitpick to keep Larkin out. I mean, he has some injuries. Uh, maybe he's not like the prototypical uh, power-hitting first baseman they like to put in the hall. But if you're just going to say we need the Hall of Fame to represent you know, the best, you know, Barry Larkin clearly belongs. Okay, so Larkin, Larkin, we think will be in. We think no one else will be in. There are a couple of guys, yeah. or three guys, really, I guess, in Bagwell, Reigns, and Edgar Martinez, that are all sort of uh, that were in the 30 to 40 percent range in 2011. Uh, Edgar Martinez has this has this sort of DH tag put onto him. I don't know. I don't necessarily know the argument against Tim Reigns, except maybe that he was somehow not impressive enough. And then Jeff Bagwell. It, uh, for Jeff Bagwell, and maybe we should just go over all three of these guys briefly to kind of do like a capsule as to what's keeping them out. Uh, but Jeff Bagwell, it's this—it's the suspicion of steroids. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody believes that uh, Jeff Bagwell is not a Hall of Famer based on his performances. Uh, people just look at him and say, skinny guy who had seven home runs in AAA, then got really huge during the mid-90s. Uh, we think he used steroids. We're not voting for him. So, I mean, with Bagwell, the only reason he's not um, – sliding in and, you know, should have gone in last year is people are speculating about steroid usage. And, you know, I mean, fair or unfair, 
Uh, he did play in a time where a lot of guys used steroids, and, uh, you know, there's a, a pretty decent chance. I think any realistic evaluation has to say that Bagwell used. The problem is we just don't know. <laughs> We're just really guessing. And so uh, the voters are basically keeping him out on a guess. Uh, they might be guessing right, but they're guessing. Now, you, uh, Dave Cameron, are officially a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Yes, which I means as that, of like uh, a couple days ago. Right, which means that eventually down the road, I think it's a, is it a 10-year sort of probation period? Ten, ten, 10 years, so I'll get a Hall of Fame vote, assuming that I remain an active BBWA member for the next uh, 10 years. I'd get a vote in, what, 2021. Okay. Um, let, let's pretend, you know, whatever, you have the vote now. Would you be inclined, I, I, it seems based on the numbers, Jeff Bagwell, of course, finished with over 80 career wins above replacement. That's more than sufficient. The threshold is what for batters? About 70-something? Yeah, almost everyone who gets 70-plus is in. There's a few exceptions. Um, When you raise the bar to 80, almost like it's like 99% of the guys with 80 war uh, are in. I mean, there's just very, very few guys who perform that well who aren't in the Hall of Fame. And now, okay, so what if you knew for a fact that a player did steroids? Does that affect it for you? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, I, I understand the arguments uh, from the statistical crowd, who I will say in general are more steroid-friendly and think that, you know, there isn't a whole lot of evidence to suggest that steroids actually helps you all that much, or at least we can't quantify how much it helps you. Um, the pitchers were probably using steroids, so, you know, it was maybe more level playing field than it was generally given credit for. But to me, I, I think there is something to the fact, um, especially once they put these the rules against it in place, it is cheating. And there is a character clause in the Hall of Fame. Um, and I think, you know, whether we want to diminish the uh, value of what they what they actually were able to do through their cheating, the intent was to um, disobey the rules. And I think that should be held against them. So for me, a guy who's maybe a marginal Hall of Famer, who we can say maybe he wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer if it were not for uh, steroid usage, and we know conclusively that he used that probably would sway my vote. Uh, when I published my theoretical ballot today on the site, I didn't include Rafael Palmero. He's a guy who uh, failed a drug test um, with pretty decent evidence that uh, Palmero used steroids. And he's a guy that, uh, for me, is, is a borderline case, even with his current performance. So if you take away some percentage of his value for uh, steroid usage, then he's an even more marginal candidate. He talks in the fact that he knowingly broke the rules in order to uh, at least try and help himself perform better, and for me that makes him enough. Okay. Now you wrote the other day about Edgar Martinez, and yeah. I think for you it's uh, at some level it's conclusive. Does this have to do with peak years versus longevity with Edgar Martinez? Yeah, with Edgar, the, there's basically a couple of knocks against him. There's a, a group of voters who just won't vote for DHs because they don't believe that guys who play uh, exclusively on offense um, should be rewarded in the Hall of Fame, or they hold them to a ridiculous standard that no one can meet, and de facto just keep all hall, hall, uh, designators out of the Hall of Fame. Um, and then there's a group of people who believe that Edgar used steroids or think that he might have, and so there's certainly voters who are holding his uh, era and aging curve against him since he was really good from 32 to 40, uh, a lot better than he was up until age 32, which you don't normally see. Um, and so uh, I think with Edgar, you've got a, a shorter career guy who has had little defensive value and played during an era where everyone's assumed guilty, whether fair or not. Uh, and I think that's going to conspire to keep him out of the hall for quite a long time. 
beyond skill, and we'll talk, we can talk about Edgar or uh, Tim Raines in a second. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, though, with regard to Dick Allen, who uh, finished with close to 70 war, and who I think it, beyond that is a is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, for anyone who doesn't vote for him in the Hall of Fame, I don't. I, I harbor no grudges, but I was thinking uh, about what the other criteria might be for voting for someone for the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I happen to think Dick Allen is awesome, and, and, and so that's kind of enough. The fact that like he smoked in a dugout, and that's hilarious right. to me. Uh, that he had his hometown name on the back of his shirt, that is awesome to me. So it's a personal Hall of Fame, if nothing else. I know that uh, I saw one writer, in who I don't know who it was, maybe you know, voted for Bill Miller. I think he was on – Bill Miller was on his Hall of Fame ballot. The, the uh, third baseman? Yeah, just because he really liked Bill Miller, I guess. That, that's great. I know like, there was like, uh, some uh, guy who just cast votes for guys who were friendly to them or who were nice who were like did something nice for their child or something because they know they're not going to get in, so they see it as a there's no harm in voting for this guy. He's clearly not going to get elected, so I'm just going to throw him a bone and give him a vote. Uh, and so it actually is funny. You can look back through some of the... Uh, some of the candidacies and say like uh, John Candelaria got more votes for the Hall of Fame than uh, than you know some pretty good pitchers were on the the ballot in his year. And I don't think anyone actually thinks John Candelaria deserved a Hall of Fame vote. So there definitely is some reciprocity between writers and players who you know do something nice for me, I might throw you a bone, you retire. Okay, but to, so to take a um, a notable example, pretend Jackie Robinson hadn't been really awesome at baseball. Uh, I mean, how bad would he have had to have been not to get into the Hall of Fame? Or or is he just right, going to be in the Hall of Fame? I mean, I guess that's the, when you get down to what the definition of the Hall of Fame should be. I mean, the Lord Fame is in there, so I think that there's no doubt there should be some consideration beyond just raw performance. I and mean, there are people who argue for Roger Maris being in the Hall of Fame, even though he's pretty clearly not a Hall of Fame player, but he held the home run record, which is probably the most famous record in baseball, for a really long time. And... uh you know, there's a there's a fame aspect to Roger Maris that probably goes above and beyond how good he was as a baseball player. Um, but Roger Maris isn't in the Hall of Fame, and I think that there are um, historical precedents saying that the, the standards that the writers have set and that the Hall of Fame has upheld is that it's more about performance than simply being a character or having something interesting about your career. They they really kind of set up the standards to reward longevity and career milestones and hitting big round numbers um, and kind of rewarding legendary players more so than players who do interesting things. You wrote a piece recently comparing, I think it was Alan Trammell versus Robin Yount. Yeah. The comparison between peak and length. Can you, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, uh, the voters rely too much on the milestone numbers that are, heavily skewed by career length. So a guy like Yount uh, got in on his first ballot because he got 3,000 hits. And 3,000 hits is, um, Rafael Palmero aside, a automatic induction. I mean, that's just a ticket to the whole thing. If you get 300 wins, you're almost certainly going in. I mean, there's these round numbers that the voters have essentially set up as uh, markers that if you get there, you're in. And they don't even give a whole lot of thought to the rest of your resume if you get one of those numbers. And that really... Uh, use the voting patterns towards guys who play for a really long time. And in cases like uh, Yount and Paul Molitor and some of these other guys, you know, half of their careers were spent as average or slightly above average, or in some cases slightly below average players, where for 10 years they were, 
you know, nice little role players, uh, guys who are the sixth or seventh best player on their team. Um, you know, they might have been somewhere down in the lineup. They, they might have been platoon players. They might have been replaced on defense. Uh, they weren't exactly stars of their time, uh, but they stayed around and they stayed healthy and they played until they were, you know, in their early 40s. And so they compiled these huge numbers that in career statistics look really valuable versus a guy like, uh, you know, Alan Trammell might not have had the same career uh, length and might not have gotten 3,000 hits, but during the 10 or 11 or 12 years when he really was one of the best players in baseball, he was just as good as uh, these Hall of Famers at their peak. And so for me, I, I lean more towards peak value than I do for career value. I, I care a little less about the milestones. Uh, I want to remember the guys who were really impact guys. And so if I ever take my kids to Cooperstown, I would love to show them a plaque of a guy like Edgar Martinez, who was a fantastic player for 10 or 11 years. I don't really want to show them a plaque of a guy like Omar Vizquel, who's a okay player for 20. Uh, is there any sort of players besides, uh, beside you know, like Alan Trammell, uh, who had kind of brilliant peaks, but maybe didn't have the longevity? Guys that you think might be sort of on the the precipice of qualification? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting current guys is going to be uh, what the voters do with Vladimir Guerrero. I mean, I think if you look at a guy like Guerrero, uh, he's uh, he declined at like 33, 34, and he looks like he's 37 now, and he looks to be done. So I, I don't think Guerrero's going to get another full-time job. Uh, he was basically a really good player for about 10 years. He had some injury problems in that time frame. During his peak, I don't think there's any doubt that he was one of the best players in baseball, one of the most feared hitters in the sport for the Jim Rice crowd. Um, Vladimir Guerrero, I think, passes a lot of the smell tests of Hall of Famer when you see him play, but he didn't play that long, and his career totals aren't going to be all that amazing. Um, and I, I will be interested to see what they do with a guy like Guerrero. I think voters who will look at his career numbers and say he just didn't play long enough, and even have some voters who look at him and say, I remember Vladimir Guerrero being the best hitter in baseball for a three- or four-year stretch, or you know, that might be an incorrect memory, but they're going to remember him as that kind of hitter and uh, he's going to get some support. So I think he's kind of a, a current example of this peak versus career where I would vote for Guerrero, even though I know he's a bubble guy, but I think if you value career length more than I do, then maybe he's someone you don't put in. The uh, sabermetric crowd supported uh, Burp Lylevin, I think, led by... Um, Rich Letterer. Rich Letterer, right. Uh, and Blylevin got in eventually. Uh, yeah. Now, I think probably if, if the sabermetric crowd has sort of thrown their weight behind anyone and it's, you know it's a question i mean just generally speaking uh it's it's been tim rains in recent years uh rains is currently in his what did we have uh, fifth year of eligibility and last year he got uh, just a hair under 40 percent of the vote what uh what is the argument against rains is it just that is it is it a lack of of lifetime numbers is it a lack of peak years yeah, with Reigns, it's more about the peak. I mean, he played a really long time, uh, but Reigns is the kind of guy who excelled in things that voters don't generally care about. So the milestones that we talked about are generally, you know, number of hits, number of home runs, uh, to some extent number of RBIs, but not quite as much. Um, for a position player, walks and stolen bases are not usually all that well thought of, and those are the things that Tim Reigns did really well. He drew a lot of walks, he had a lot of doubles, so a lot of bases at a really high success rate. These are things that voters don't tend to look at. And uh, so he was great at things that aren't all that important in Hall of Fame voting and not that great at things that are. And so, you know, he ends up getting compared to um, Ricky Henderson, which isn't a comparison he's going to lose, but it is a comparison that almost everyone would lose. Ricky Henderson is maybe one of the ten best players of all time, 
So when people look at Tim Raines and say, well, he wasn't Ricky Henderson, that's not a reason to keep him out of the Hall of Fame. Then you hear other comparisons to guys like Vince Coleman just because he also stole a ton of bases, and you realize that he's just uh, really undervalued in a lot of people's minds. They just don't realize how good he was. He didn't have that kind of uh, five- or six-year stretch where he looked like one of the best players in baseball, but if you go back and actually look at his performances, it's pretty clear that you know Reigns was kind of the chase out of his time where he might not have gotten the recognition for being a great player, but he clearly was. You mentioned before going going to the Hall of Fame. Uh, with your hypothetical children, or maybe maybe some children you've you've just found on the street and you've brought there. Uh, I'm curious if you've actually ever been to the the Hall of Fame. I have. I went. Uh, uh, one of the fellow um, founders of USS Mariner did a uh, stint at the Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park. So I went up there for uh, Thanksgiving visit one year. Um, it's always a good idea to have Thanksgiving with somebody who's learning how to be a master cook. And uh, we took a trip over to Cooperstown and uh, walked through it. And I, I have to say, I was not as um, I was disappointed. I, it wasn't as cool as I had hoped it would be. Uh, there were some neat things to look at, but it wasn't like it was a place that I wanted to spend three days. I mean, we walked through it. We spent a good portion of the day there. I enjoyed my time, but at the end of it, I was ready to go. This itch of this is something I have to come back to regularly. I felt like it was something that I'd done and seen and. Um, if Cooper Sound is going to want to get me to come back, they're going to have to give me a reason to come back other than seeing plaques I've already seen. What do you What do you want to What do you want to see there? Do you think anything off the top of your head? I mean, I think the uh, an induction of a of a player who I have a lot of fondness for would probably draw me. So, uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. is going to go in in 2016. Um, despite growing up in Seattle during the time when Griffey was super famous, he doesn't hold that kind of special memory for me. So, I don't think I'll be making the trip to see Griffey get inducted. Randy Johnson is another story. Uh, I really love watching Randy Johnson pitch. Uh, I might make the trip for a Randy Johnson induction. Um, I would almost certainly go for an Edgar Martinez induction in, in some ways just to support a guy who I feel like uh, should be in and is going to have a long and hard road to get in, and also just because I think it would be uh, really great to see him honored. Do you, do you think then it's, it's, it's actually designed for older people, the Hall of Fame? I want the museum. So, I, I mean, I think if you take the uh, average age of museum goer, regardless of what the niche of museum is, you're, you're not going to find a lot of teeny boppers uh, frequenting museums by choice. They might be going on mandatory field trips, but they're not you know, going there in their spare time. So um, I do think that the museum skews to the older generation, the generation that cares more about history, um, and I think that, you know, it is probably in the Hall of Fame's best interest to try and figure out how to appeal more to a younger demographic, especially if they want to uh, continue to stay open for the foreseeable future. All right, Cameron. How long have we been on the phone here? Twenty minutes. Yeah, time just time flies when you're having fun, right? Time just flies by. Yeah. Hey, okay. Not related at all. <laughs> Is Brian LeHair gonna? He's gonna be the starting first baseman for the Cubs this year. It sounds like they're gonna let him start the year with a job. I think that they're gonna give him a couple months of sink or swim, prove you're not a 4A guy. I know Theo said on the radio last week that he doesn't believe in the 4A label. And he believes Brian Lehrer can hit. Uh, I don't think they're going to give him an entire year. If he's sitting 180 by May, they'll go get someone else. But I think they're going to let him start the year and see what he can do. And if he gets off to a good start, then they'll let him run with it. Okay, right. And this is all response to the fact that uh, recently the um, the Cubs, and led by Theo Epstein and, and Jed Hoyer, who have at different times 
been the general manager in charge of Anthony Rizzo, uh, traded uh, right-handed, I guess, reliever, starter, Andrew Kashner? A little bit of both. He's going to probably pitch in the bullpen this year with the eye of moving him to the rotation eventually, but he, he missed most of last season with arm problems. And, you know, just from a uh, wisdom perspective, you need to limit his innings anyway. So I think they're looking at it and saying, you know what, if we can give him 50 or 60 innings out of the bullpen this year, let him stay healthy, maybe we can send him to winter ball next year, work up his arm, bring him to spring training as a starter the following year, but to try and rush him into the rotation after missing almost an entire season doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, so they traded him for Anthony Rizzo, um, who became expendable or expendable-ish, I guess, in San Diego uh, after San Diego acquired Yonder Alonso. Is that somewhat accurate? Uh, essentially, the uh, Padres looked at Rizzo and said, left-handed, full-power, uh, first baseman, probably not going to work here that well. So we'll go get a guy who has power to the opposite field. It will play better in Petco. Um, and Alonzo's a better fit for the park and probably a little more major league ready. And then they'll flip Rizzo for Kashner. So they, they would rather have Alonzo and Kashner than Rizzo. And, you know, from their perspective, I can see where they're coming from. Okay, so but, so it's an interesting point you made about the 4A level. Brian LaHare, I think, was... 27 or 28 this past year, and he had 38 home runs uh, at AAA Iowa. That's a lot of home runs, and for a guy who's not it, super old. It's a lot of home runs. It's not a whole lot of home runs for the PCL. So I, I don't think people understand just how good a hitter's league, the Pacific Coast League, really is and really was last year. I think the average OPS in the PCL last year was like 820. I mean, it was really, really high. Um, and uh, there's some just crazy offensive environments down there. Iowa is not one of them necessarily. Well, but, that's uh, my, yeah, that's my point, Dave. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, you you do, especially like in the the Western ball clubs, you know, Colorado Springs and Reno, uh, and uh, Las Vegas. You get those crazy numbers, Tucson. but Tucson, right? But but AAA uh, Iowa Iowa City. That's that's a different story. I mean, to some degree, it is. But they travel, and so uh, you know, even if you're not playing in one of these crazy hitters parks, you get to hit in them quite a bit. And so, uh, Lahair's numbers might not need to be inflated quite as much as you know a guy who played in Vegas or something. But they they still have a lot of air in them. And Lahair's been in the PCL for uh, quite some time, uh, putting up some interesting numbers uh, when you don't adjust for context. But I mean, he's a guy who. Struggles with left-handed pitching. Uh, you know, he's got some issues with his swing length. I think there are legitimate reasons to believe that LaHare could struggle, um, perhaps mightily in the major leagues and be one of these guys who his, his, uh, skills work against AAA pitching, but maybe not against major league pitching. I'd probably buy into the 4A label with guys like LaHare, uh, more than Theo Epstein does. I don't think LaHare is necessarily going to be like the worst player in baseball, but my guess is come May or June, they've figured out that major league pitchers uh, can get LaHare out enough to where he probably shouldn't be their starting first baseman the rest of the year. Okay, and then finally, just sort of a, a miscellaneous point here. Uh, over over the uh, the break, uh, the Mariners signed uh, Hisashi Iwakuma. Yeah, Hisashi. Hisashi, yeah. sorry. Uh, Hisashi Iwakuma uh, to a, a contract that uh, whose terms I'm not remembering, but doesn't really matter. What's what's Iwakuma uh, what's Iwakuma going to do there? Is because uh, I looked at his numbers and he's a uh, he throws like six pitches with some regularity it appears, and then addition yeah. uh, in addition to that uh, he doesn't strike a lot of guys out, but he hardly walks anybody. Yeah, he's a command ground ball guy. Uh, the interesting thing about Iwakuma is last year, you know, the A's bid $19 million to win his rights to the posting process and then offered a contract that was reportedly in the $16 million over four-year range. 
Uh, Iwakuma considered it an insulting offer, turned it down, stayed in Japan, uh, got hurt, lost a couple miles an hour as fastball, and signed for a million five this year. So, uh, bad decision by Iwakuma to, to be insulted by the A's offer last year. He cost himself about $15 million, uh, as the A's ended up saving a lot of money for a pitcher who, uh, who immediately got hurt. So, good, good call on their part for, uh, Iwakuma to turn them down, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how his stuff translates. I think, you know, the reports were he was 85 to 87 this year. He's been in the upper 80s and lower 90s before. Um, he's definitely a sinker ball guy, so, you know, there are guys who sit around 88, 89 and get a lot of ground balls and uh, don't walk anyone who can make that work in the major leagues. But then, you know, that's a pretty fine line. We've seen, you know, Carlos Silva is maybe a good example of this kind of skill set where, when it was 89 to 91, he was an okay pitcher for the Twins, and then it all of a sudden it was 87 in Seattle, and he was batting practice. And uh, so, you know, there's a there's a pretty thin line that Iwakuma is going to be um, walking here, where if his stuff has denigrated, uh, major league hitters might beat him up pretty good, which is why he only cost the Mariners a million five to begin with. Well, I guess it's not a terrible gamble, then. No, right. I mean, it's clearly a, a move with upside. I mean, uh, a year ago he was considered one of the best pitchers in Japan. Um, if he's healthy and his velocity comes back uh, and he throws strikes and gets ground balls, I mean, he could easily be a two- or three-wing pitcher. I mean, Hiroki Kuroda has kind of similar numbers to Iwakuma when he came over from Japan, profiled similarly. Kuroda throws a little bit harder than Iwakuma does, but not drastically so. Um, and uh, obviously Kuroda's been one of the best pitchers in the National League for the last three or four years. So I think with that kind of upside for a million five, I mean, I put this up in the USS Mariner post when they, when they announced the signing, but uh, he signed for less guaranteed money than uh, Unieski Betancourt. It's hard to argue with that kind of contract. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed uh, today on the site, um, I posted the results for a, a stat that doesn't actually exist called Wreck, which is uh, reckless power. Uh, you, <laughs> you, uh, you divide isolated power by isolated patients. And, wow. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Uni Betancourt is uh, second on, on, on the list from last year. Adrian Beltre is first. Uh, this is just like a collection of the 2007 Mariners, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, or is the AL West generally? I think uh, I was looking at the like the uh, the uh, list, the top ten list for players uh, going back to 2002, uh, otherwise known as the Fangraphs era. Do you accept that that terminology, the Fangraphs era? I, I think that that should be the official designation of all. Of it. Adopted by Major League Baseball. Yes, right. Well, that, I think that's the number of uh, we have XFIP maybe going back to then, right? Because we have sort of more granular batted we, ball we have, data. Yeah, we have batted ball data since 2002. So. Right. So that's the Fangraphs era. Uh, going back to the Fangraphs era, I think Garrett Anderson is on the list like th- three times. I, uh, I would imagine Miguel Olivo has to rank really highly. Olivo's up there. Actually, the top two spots um, are occupied by Ivan Rodriguez with the Detroit Tigers. Yeah, he, okay, yeah, I can see that. There were a couple of years where he was a monstrous hack. Right, right, and you wonder, you wonder why, uh, why pitchers pitch to them at all uh, if they're going to swing that much. I mean, his ISOs were still pretty good, but yep. um, I mean, I think he walked like eleven and nine times respectively those two seasons. Rodriguez. Yeah, I remember when the, the Rodriguez had those years where he just refused to walk, and he took pride in that. I think there were actually interviews with him where he was like, "Yeah, I'm really happy about the fact that I haven't walked in a while. That means I'm hitting well." Yeah, that's one way, I guess, of looking yeah. at it. Uh, I guess it's good for him that he was a good defensive catcher, because otherwise it wouldn't have lasted very long. All right. Uh, well, Cameron, let's stop this. You, I'm sure you have uh, important uh, things to do. Did you have anything else you needed to add? Uh, nothing that can't wait until next week. 
Right. Okay. So nothing pressing. Anyway. Uh, well, Dave Cameron, it, it was uh, nice to return to the podcast to, to return uh, with you on it. It was nice to be returned to. That's weird. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Dave. <laughs> uh, that's Dave Cameron. Of course, it's a stoolie, and this is the triumphant return of Fangraphs Audio. Just can't leave.